white. So that's what it's about. Not that I've done stuff in the past. <laughs> Me with notices, etc., but he, I think he's on a cruise. <laughs> or, you know, oh, you know, deep sympathy for him, but um, there we are. So, uh, next month it's Curry and Carols, okay, December, uh, a family affair, so you boys will have to <coughs> look out, you know. We try not to have tablecloths and flowers, but the ladies get involved. And so we quite often do have tablecloths. We don't have flowers, but we do have tablecloths and other such things. And it's good fun, all right? So um, it's the Saturday kind of before-ish Christmas, about 17th, that kind of day. Um, it will be open soon by tickets, all right? So um, it's a ticket-only affair, it's for families. Um, and Ken is the MC, and I'm nowhere to be seen, which is always a good thing, basically. Um, and uh, so that's December. January, we are hoping that Benton is going to come and talk to us. Um, if you recall, Pete came and talked to us quite some time ago about the results of um, census. Thank you. The census. Um, he's not quite sure what he's going to talk about this time. And also not quite sure whether he's going to talk at all because he's got long COVID um, and is, is struggling. Right? So at the moment, pen, pen. <coughs> Pete is penned in, penciled in even, uh, for January. Um, and so that's kind of, that's our outlook. Um, the other outlook is uh, probably your very kind donations may have to increase in January. Um, Whereas my macro bill used to be around about 70, 75 pound, it's now around about 105 pound. Yeah? And I've done nothing different, okay? Um, we're not for profit, as you realize, um, but I do not intend to be subsidizing them, if you follow me. <laughs> so it's very personal. So anyway, uh, there'll be more. <laughs> and so in January onwards, um, there, there, will be, there will have to be an increase on our front. Um, this evening, this man here, the last time he came, we weren't quite sure whether he was a prof or not a prof. And so we couldn't actually call him a prof because he wasn't a prof, but now he is a professor. <laughs> so Professor David is going to talk to us about the final run frontier and all those other bits and pieces moving on from that last one. David, for you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So it's a privilege to be here again. Thank you for inviting me back. Um, last time I was at this group, it was before all of the lockdowns. So hopefully we're the, the other side Is of that, that now. Dark? Oh, 
Or that's fine. I think that's probably good, actually, because okay, there will good. be some... Um, the actual last time I was in this hall was in the summertime, when it was my brother's uh, uh, marriage blessing in, in this church. So it's lots of happy memories here. But tonight I'm going to be telling you about some of the latest results uh, in cosmology and also space science. So I'm going to be telling you about things that are happening at the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation at the University of Portsmouth, which is where I'm the Associate Director. And all sorts of exciting things are happening that I want to tell you about tonight, including some brand new news that I didn't know I was going to be able to tell you, but my final slide is really hot off the press. So you hear it here first. So the ICG, it's a well-known centre for cosmology in the UK. It uh, started in 2002, so it's now 20 years old. What happened was um, a few people from the maths department started a new institute in 2002. And they were very canny and good at getting funding and further people to come and work with them. This is well before my time, so it's not my fault. And um, now it's grown to be about 70 of us at any given time, including nearly 20 permanent members of staff, uh, about 15 postdocs who are there for a few years, about 25 PhD students, and then lots and lots of visitors from around the world who come and stay with us for a week or a year to, to work with us. So it's a very, very exciting place to be, and I have to say, it's such a great group of people. They're very smart, but they're also very, very kind, and I've benefited over many years from the the, the pleasure of working with this group. So, what I'd like to do is to introduce for all of us the universe which we are studying. So you can see our star, the Sun, and we're just going past all of our planets in our solar system. If we zoom out, then we find that there's other stars, as well as our Sun, and gas clouds, like the one we're flying through right now. And all of those stars and gas clouds make up our home, the Milky Way galaxy. This is our home, made of hundreds of billions of stars. And then there's other galaxies, like Andromeda here, each made of hundreds of billions of stars. And if you zoom out further, you see that there's hundreds of billions of galaxies, each made of hundreds of billions of stars. In this animation, we've now got to, um, we've been going back in time, as well as getting further out. So we're now at the time before the stars started to shine and near the beginning of the universe's history when there's this hot gas that fills the whole of space. And if we go back even further, we get to the very <coughs> beginning of time. So that's the picture that we have of the universe. Please understand, none of that was evidence. That was an assertion. It's an animation, but it's all based on the evidence that we now have for in astronomy and cosmology. So the things that we do in Portsmouth um, uh, can really be summed up in four different areas. My area is observational cosmology. So we're presented with images like this from the world's largest, most powerful telescopes. Almost every little blob you can see on this image is a galaxy, not a star. So 
Uh, this is just a, a tiny patch of the sky. It's a fraction of the size of the moon. And even in such a small patch, you can see that it's completely almost tiled by galaxies, typically at a distance of between 4 and 10 billion light years away. That means that the light has had to travel for billions of years to get to us. And I'm interested in these images to try to work out what do they mean and what's going on. How can we understand what the physics is that's causing these types of images? What's going on with the patterns in the, this type of image? When you see where the galaxies are, if you squint, maybe you think they're just randomly uh, distributed. Or if you squint, maybe you think that they're in some kind of pattern. Maybe there's lines of them and gaps. Or maybe we're making that up. It's quite hard to tell by eye, isn't it? So we need to look very carefully with uh, the best data, and the best computer techniques to look if there's any patterns in that and then to try to explain those patterns. That's about a quarter of us. Another quarter of us look at theoretical cosmology. So these are the people who are trying to take physics theories like Einstein's theory of gravity and apply that to what we see and try to fit whether the physics in Einstein's theory can explain what we see or not. In other words, was Einstein right? It's often something that people are interested in. So what uh, theoretical cosmologists are interested in is, from the very beginning, what happened near this first fraction of a second of the universe's history? And then, here's that hot gas that we saw. What happened, what, what are the patterns in that hot gas? And then what happened to gradually make all of the things that we see in the universe ever since. So one of the things, for instance, that some of these theoretical people do is that they, they do simulations of things in the, in the universe. So here's a simulation where, in a computer, they've got a box of material, and it's just very, very simple material that notices the law of gravity and nothing else. It doesn't give off light, it just falls together because of gravity. And what you can see happens if you've got such a type of material is that first of all it's quite smoothly distributed and then because of gravity the places where there was slightly more material well that gets more material to come near to it and the places where there was slightly less material well that tends to evacuate and so the material comes together and creates this beautiful pattern like a web and it turns out that this type of pattern of material that's just clumped together because of gravity is the pattern that we see in our galaxies. If you do a dot-to-dot -dot picture of where the galaxies are, it's as though they lie on a web just like this. So this is one of the things that theorists have realised, that it's as though the universe is full of material that only cares about gravity and nothing else. And that we call dark matter. Later we'll see if there's any evidence, observational evidence, which would say that this is true or not. So another third of us are interested in things a little bit smaller than the whole universe, and that is particular galaxies. I'm trying to understand these beautiful objects. How did they form? How are they changing over time? What's in the middle? <laughs> what are they made of? All of these big questions about galaxies. So, for instance, my colleague 
Dan Whalen has recently been doing a simulation where not only did he put in those particles that only care about gravity, he also put in particles for gas and saw how the gas streams together in the early universe and clumps together in the middle to make a black hole. And so he's simulating the first generation of black holes that existed only a few million years after the Big Bang. And so this paper he published in Nature this year, um, for the first time, is understanding the birth of these black holes. You see this word quasar? That is um, basically a black hole which isn't looking completely invisible and dark, but actually all the material around it is so energetic that the, there's light coming to us from around the black hole. People often say that black holes suck up all the light, but if you're a way out from it, you might be very, very energetic and giving out light that can get to us. So that's one of the things that our astrophysicists have been doing. And the last quarter of us are doing something I think very revolutionary, which is like a totally new sort of astronomy. And this is using something called gravitational waves. If you've got two black holes, uh, these are, this is an animation representing two black holes a billion light years away, then they might orbit each other like this. And as they orbit, they get closer together and spiral in until eventually they merge into one black hole. And did you see what happened at that moment when they merged? The whole of the space around it seemed to wobble a bit. Let's just watch that again. You can see out here there's something weird going on where the light is being bent quite badly. But as they get very close together, it's as though the whole fabric of space and time starts to vibrate. And that really does happen. It's like actual waves in space and time. Watch it. Any moment now. It also look, looks like it kind of wobbles all the way out. And that is, that's, that's true, that's what happens. These vibrations then spread through the universe. At the beginning, they're incredibly energetic. The amount of energy coming out of that merger is more than all of the stars in the universe put together. The energy of all the stars in the universe put together. So it's really very, very dramatic. Then those waves vibrate, go off for a billion years until they're discovered in a field in the United States. as <laughs> a slight ripple in the length of a laser beam. There's these laser beams that are four kilometres long and my colleagues are trying to detect the slight changes in length of those laser beams as those gravitational waves come by. So that's our four groups. I now want to introduce to you a few of the interesting and important results that have come out of Portsmouth over the last few years, probably since I saw you last, maybe. So one thing that we're leading in is um, work with telescopes that look at visible light. So for instance, there's the Dark Energy Survey, which I helped to manage, and the Dark Energy Spectroscopic Image Instrument, which uh, some of my colleagues are, are leading things about. In fact, the Dark Energy Survey, uh, all of the scientists across the world are coming to Portsmouth in January for the next collaboration meeting, and we're currently figuring out how to show them round the Mary Rose or something like that when they're here. 
This is the sort of image that the Dark Energy Survey takes. Again, this is just a fraction of the moon in terms of the size on the sky, and almost all the little objects you can see are galaxies. There are a few stars like that one. If you, could, you can imagine that as like dirt on the windscreen, really. It's much closer to us than most of the things we're interested in. This is in our galaxy. It's on our windscreen. But all of these things are billions of light years away. So how do you make an image like that? Well, you use uh, a world-class telescope like this one. This is CTIO in Chile. It's this telescope here. And over the last 10 years, it's made a big image, a mosaic image of most of a significant patch of the southern hemisphere. So because it's in Chile, it can see the southern sky. Each image it takes is a few degrees wide, and then it moves and takes another image, and takes another image, and takes another image, until it creates an image of a large patch, a 5,000 square degree patch on the sky. Do you know how many square degrees there are in a, a dome? A hemisphere? It's 20,000 in a hemisphere. So if, you, if you're on a clear night and you can see the whole of the northern hemisphere, you're seeing 20,000 square degrees. And this survey has taken a good patch, a quarter of a hemisphere, where it's now got very, very clear, deep images of that whole region. And the typical galaxies that it's seeing in that region are 8 billion light years deep. It's the first time it's really been done, that sheer volume of the universe probed. And the way it's doing it is using this uh, camera here that I helped to calibrate. Um, it's a large camera, but uh, not ridiculous numbers of pixels, with a, a, a two degree scale that it can look at at a given time. And then, like I say, it creates a mosaic patch by patch. So what have I been doing and what have my colleagues been doing with this dark energy survey? One of the things we've been doing is directly trying to measure a map of that dark matter I told you about. So the matter that only cares about gravity, it doesn't shine, it doesn't glow, it doesn't cast a shadow, it just clumps together to make a web by gravity. Supposedly, I haven't shown you the evidence yet. This is the way that we can get some evidence. The way to think about what we've been doing is to think about one of these front door windows. And if uh, you're sat there and there's a front door window between you and me, and I come up to the front door, um, you see I'm all blotchy and blobby because of the strange pattern on the glass. And if you know what I normally look like, you probably don't think that I've gone all blobby. Your brain automatically thinks, there must be some glass between me and David, because David doesn't normally look like that. And you, you sort of immediately get a kind of picture in your head of where the blobs are on the glass, because you know that the blobs must be in those places to make my face look so weird. It's exactly the same that we're seeing in the universe. It's almost, you can imagine that there's a front door window here, can't you? And there's kind of a blob of glass here that's making these objects that I'm pointing out very distorted. You get something rather similar with my face, you? these kind of arcs behind certain types of front door window. So almost by eye, you can figure out that there must be something that's distorting these objects here, some kind of glass matter. But it turns out that's dark matter, <laughs> and the gravity from that dark matter is bending the light. So if we measure 
all of these distorted objects and we have computer programs that can then figure out what the glass looks like, where the blobs must be in the glass. So you can make a map of the blobs of glass. It's not really glass, you understand. It's some kind of cloudy, dark matter. But it's acting like glass. So this, this effect is called gravitational lensing, and it shows, as we can see here, that there must be loads and loads of dark matter in this region that's causing these weird distortions. We don't know what dark matter is yet, but uh, those simulations I showed you make it look like it's some kind of new subatomic particle, but it would, only, it would be a type of subatomic particle that only cares about gravity. So we've now tried this with the whole of the dark energy survey data. We've taken all of the galaxies, all of these little blobs you can see, and we've measured their shapes to see how distorted they are and to see if I can explain the patterns in the, the shapes of these by little blobs of glass in front of them. <coughs> so all of these objects have been measured, their, their shapes, and then with a computer, we've done what you would do with a front door window to see where there's some distortions. And we come up with this. This is a very, very large map. It's a very strange shape. This is the region that the Dark Energy Survey has looked at. This is about 4 billion light years across. This is a few billion light years up and down. And you're looking deep into the universe. The, the, the orange and yellow is where there seems to be this, in quotes, glass. It's where there seems to be places where there's more distortion than usual, or places where there's dark matter. And where it's black, that's where there's no distortion. What you can see is that there is indeed some kind of web-like structure that we're seeing in the red and yellow. The green is where there's lots of galaxies, and it's as though the galaxies lie almost like dewdrops along the web. It's not perfect, but often there's more galaxies where there's this dark matter. So this is the, the biggest map we've got yet, and the biggest evidence we have that there's a dark matter web across the universe. And that came out uh, last year during lockdown. It's very painful. But not only can we do that, we can also look at a map of where the galaxies are themselves. And this is what this other instrument is doing, the dark energy spectroscopic instrument. And this is one of the early maps of where the galaxies are. You can see that there's big gaps. That doesn't mean that there's places in the universe that are empty. You can imagine that's patches of the sky that haven't been looked at yet. We're in the middle. Not because we think we're in the middle of the universe, but we're definitely in the middle of the map that we can make, aren't we? <laughs> so, and this is looking further and further out, and you can perhaps see that there is some kind of graininess or web-like structure to where the galaxies are. This is my student, Raffaella, and she's trying to understand the patterns that we're seeing in these galaxies, and trying to see if that gives us evidence for how the universe has been expanding over time. So that's what we've been doing with visible telescopes right now, but we're also getting ready for the next generation, and I mean very, very, very soon there's the next generation of things, in particular the Euclid Space Telescope. So my boss, Adam Amara, designed this. He's our boss at the ICG, um, and I think he started work on it in 2005, and it's going to fly next year. 
So it takes quite a lot of commitment to get these space telescopes to work. Um, it's, it was due to be going up on a Russian rocket until last year. So everybody thought it would be delayed forever. People were really uncertain about what the future was for this project. But fortunately, very deft negotiations have happened over the last six months with Elon Musk and SpaceX. And so it's now due to go up on a SpaceX uh, rocket next year. So it hasn't really been delayed. In fact, uh, it's so speedy <laughs> that everybody feels a little bit on the back foot in terms of getting ready for the analysis now. People thought that they'd got years and years to wait, but it's going up pronto. So this is one of the things that we're getting ready for. The other is this, which is almost built now, the Vera Rubin Observatory, um, again in Chile, which is going to be, in some ways, the successor to the Dark Energy Survey. Um, it's about twice as big in terms of the, the, the telescope's mirror size. So it's like having a camera four times the area, the, um, the, the aperture. And uh, it will be taking, if you like, a movie Every three nights, it will be taking an image of the whole of the sky above it. So you'll have like a stop motion image of how the night sky is varying on every three night cadence for 10 years. And so it will find all sorts of things. It will find anything that's moving. It'll find asteroids. If there is a ninth planet, it will find a ninth planet. It will see all sorts of objects that go bump in the night. Anything that flashes and then disappears, that it will discover. It will discover tens of thousands of supernovae explosions. Very exciting. So that's what's going on with visible light. Now let's go to this new type of astronomy that's just looking at gravitational waves. Let me just emphasise this to you. This is, this is like a new type of message from space. Everything that we've done as humans before, since Galileo, indeed since antiquity, has been using light, electromagnetic radiation. So we've always been using, using that signal. Even when people started using radio astronomy after the Second World War, nevertheless, that's still electromagnetic. It's just very, very long wavelengths. Everything we've done until 2015 always use the signals from electromagnetic waves. This is not electromagnetic waves. It's not light, it's not radio. This is the vibrations of space. So it's a completely different way of doing astronomy. I don't think it's exaggerating to say it's as big as Galileo, because it's a, a new probe altogether of what's going on. And this is what it looks like. Um, this is one of the stations that detected the first gravitational waves in 2015. It's a four-kilometre uh, tunnel there and a four-kilometre one there with lasers in them. They're looking for a very specific telltale signal of how those lasers wobble as the gravitational waves go past. And uh, my colleague Andy Lundgren, who's in the office next to me, was one of the three people who first detected these gravitational waves. So this is already happening, but because it's been so successful, now there's a green light for a space-based version called LISA. This is the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. 
and that will be due to launch now probably in about 2035. It's got a long lead-in time, um, but that also will be happening, and we're now preparing for it, both in terms of the theory and the, the codes for the data analysis. This is the sort of thing that, uh, this is Andy, <coughs> this is Laura, two of our members of staff, who are working on this. And this, this is the sort of thing they're doing. They're now detecting, using these gravitational waves, all sorts of interesting, peculiar objects. So they've detected these exotic stars called neutron stars, spiralling in and merging. I showed you a black hole merger before, and they've also now got ones where neutron stars are merging with black holes. And this is an uh, artist's impression of what that looks like. The neutron star was a very exotic star which looks a bit like just a massive atomic nucleus, but the size of Portsmouth. <laughs> and it's actually been completely disrupted as it falls into the black hole here. It makes this strange signal. This is, this is what they look like. That this is what they try to detect. This is time going on, and this is the frequency of the gravitational waves. So what this means is that as time goes on, they go whoop. If we could hear them, that's the, that's the vibration that they'd make. They go up in frequency until the two things merge. So that's the telltale sign. This was detected in one of the different detectors, and this is another detector the other side of the United States. And both of them noticed this characteristic chirp going whoop in about a tenth of a second. Um, which would be because of this sort of merger. The really exciting thing now is that as well as these gravitational waves that we detect going whoop, at the same time we use visible telescopes and find new objects that suddenly got brighter at the time. So we can locate where there's light corresponding to where the gravitational waves are coming from. So you can see them both in light and gravity. So then, um, something that I care about quite a lot is radio waves. So this is, um, I'm chairing the UK's science committee for this huge uh, project, which is now being built in South Africa and Western Australia. This is uh, an artist's impression, I'll show you what's actually happening in a moment. But this is what it will look like, hopefully, by the mid-2030s, thousands of radio dishes all the way across the Karoo Desert in the north of South Africa, all of these connected together and receiving radio waves from the other side of the universe. They're all working in tandem uh, to, to detect things really on the, the other edge of the observable universe. So. Um, it's, it's really going to happen. <laughs> I'm on Zoom calls every week about the way that this is getting rolled out. For those of you interested in radio, this is between 50 megahertz and 3 gigahertz. If, you're, if you've got a car radio and you see that you're tuned to what, like 85 or 96, that's, the units of that are actually megahertz. So this goes from below your car radio up to quite a lot higher than your car radio, but it's not detecting things from an antenna on Earth, it's detecting things from very deep space. 
The first phase of it is due to be ready by 2028, but already we've got, a, let's say, a fifth of it working now, and then the full thing will be in the 2030s. There's two sides to this square kilometre array. One is in South Africa, and it's these dishes, and one is uh, more like car aerials, actually, just antennae in Western Australia, hundreds of thousands of those antennae. But this is what it looks like right now. The core is already in place. These 64 dishes that are called meerkat in the Karoo Desert. And uh, they're working and we're detecting radio signals from distant galaxies. We're in fact seeing the radio signals from the overall cosmic web. So all of the gas in that cosmic web is glowing with radio waves and we can actually see that now. So this is my student Anup Sankar and he, his job is to take those glowing radio waves and try to map, try to match them with that dark matter map and see if the two webs that you see, the radio web and the dark matter web, line up or not. That's, that's what he's now working on. That's uh, all I want to say about some of the latest things that we're doing. So you can see we're working on visible light, radio waves, and gravitational waves. And for all of those things, we're making exciting progress towards the next generation. Uh, but one of the things that I really like about what we do is that we, we want to be some earthly use as well. Um, we, what, why bother with cosmology? Um, I think the only, or the most important, honest answer is it's about curiosity as a, as a species. I wouldn't want a large fraction of the UK budget to go to cosmology, but I do believe that a small slice of the pie, it's good to do curiosity-based research. It's a cultural question, really. How do we fit into the universe? What is our home like, really? Uh, home universe and so the main reason for doing it is um, Captain Kirk <laughs> is to boldly go and to understand our home but it does have useful spin-offs as well that's not why we do it but we really want to do those spin-offs too to make ourselves useful so there's lots of ways in which we're doing that one of them is that we're engaging with the public and engaging in education for the next generation of scientists and the next generation of science uh, teaching. So one of the things that we're leading in is that one of our astronomers is blind, Nick Bon, and he started thinking about how uh, traditionally inaccessible <laughs> astronomy has been to the blind and visually impaired community. It's, it's, it's been very image-oriented, don't you think? And maybe you think that that's kind of inevitable. But Nick started realising it's not inevitable. There's all sorts of ways that we could teach and engage with astronomy that are not based on eyesight. So one of the things he's been doing is to create something that is called the tactile universe that he's working with blind and visually impaired students with to introduce astronomy to them. And he's taken images of galaxies and he's made them into these raised 3D printed objects and then he and the students can talk about them and to understand 
the structure of galaxies through touch. He and another colleague are now doing an awful lot with um, thinking about how we can uh, engage with astronomy through sound instead of through sight. So they've now made a uh, science uh, museum auditorium show where for those who do have sight you can see all of the stars and there's, there's a zoom through during the show but for those who are not sighted um, all of the stars are making a noise and it's a, a sort of 3D soundscape that people are flying through and this has been extremely well received by the blind and visually impaired community to give them this sense of the the, the, the domain around them of stars and galaxies. So this is an exciting program that is continuing. It's now won lots of awards. The other way that we're engaging with the public is through something called the Zooniverse, which started as Galaxy Zoo between us and Oxford. Um, we were realising that maybe 20 years ago, the number of images of galaxies that we had uh, were, were fine for an average astronomer to look at and study and classify thousands of images. But then it got to the stage where we've now got hundreds of millions of galaxies to look at. There's just no way that any individual astronomer can look at those. But it's brilliant to farm it out like an ask the audience question to tens of thousands of people. So we started Galaxy Zoo that, that takes our data, cuts out individual galaxies, and when you go to the website, it gives you one of them and asks you, what is this? Is it a spiral galaxy? Is it an elliptical galaxy? Is there something strange that you want to point out? And then the public can click on these and we get hundreds of thousands of answers. Um, and just like on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, you don't just get one answer for each galaxy, you might get 50 answers for each galaxy, so you can spot people who are being deliberately provocative. <laughs> So, that's how it started in 2007 or so. Um, from there, all sorts of scientists realised it doesn't have to be just galaxies, it could be penguins. We could get the public to circle all the penguins on this image, and therefore we could count the penguins in a penguin colony. And we could do it this year, and we could do it next year, and we could see the health of the penguin colonies. So this was actually one of the things that we did. This is Coleman, our... Zooniverse developer, taking the same sort of ideas, but now the public are helping to count penguins. And this is him going to the South Georgia Islands to look at the colonies there. Um, and in fact, through the work of Zooniverse, um, the policies of the South Georgia Islands have changed about the fishing zones around the islands to make it a, a more healthy environment for the penguins. Or it could be medieval Hebrew uh, uh, manuscripts and the public are, 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 are transcribing these Hebrew characters for um, medieval Hebrew scholars and so on and so forth. It's a very successful project now where there's many hundreds of millions of interactions with the public and how many people are on it now? I think it's um, uh, something like six million people have been uh, involved in it. <clears throat> so that's really great. 
we're, we're enjoying doing that, and that's, that's science education and engagement. But there's three other areas where we're trying to take what we've learned from cosmology and apply it to um, the world at large. And they are health, environment, and space. So let me just take you through each of those in turn. You remember this sort of image where there's all sorts of blobs on a page. And we're world experts in detecting these blobs and measuring their shapes and measuring how big they are and how they're distributed, and many patterns in them. Well, guess what? Over the last few years, it's been incredibly important to understand how blobs spread. And you can take photos. Here there's a, 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 simulate, a simulated, very ghastly, kind of half-human pump that creates a kind of artificial cough. And the, the cough particles have been made to have a, uh, a fluorescent dye so that when we take photographs we can see the spread of them nicely. And exactly the software, I'm not kidding you, exactly the software that we use to detect blobs here and characterise them is now being used to understand the COVID droplet spread in these sort of situations. So we're working with our biologists and our health scientists at the University of Portsmouth to understand yeah. where, where are there the large particles, where are there the small particles, how far do they spread? And we actually take animation uh, videos of these to see the dynamics of what's going on. So that's one of the examples of what we're doing in health. Another thing that we're caring about is the environment. You may remember that I showed you that chirp of how time goes on versus frequency for, for gravitational waves. They went whoop. Guess what else goes whoop? Dolphins do. So exactly the same code is now being that we use for the vibrations of space-time to look for black hole mergers turns out to be very, very good for detecting dolphins in hydrophones. So last year there was this competition called GB Row where these very impressive, uh, I don't know the right word for it, rowing boats, that doesn't sound right. These, they're very impressive ships that rowers use to, to compete to go all the way around Great Britain. And one of them had a hydrophone an underwater microphone attached to look for any type of fauna making noises underwater. Turns out that what we mainly notice are shrimps that are incredibly loud, <laughs> it turns out, in these, these microphones, but also we're detecting dolphins. And again, the sort of thing that we're using is to look over time what are the frequencies that we can see and try to find particular signals associated with those. So this is the beginning of something we hope will become uh, uh, an ongoing survey of marine fauna around the UK and elsewhere. The other thing we're very good at is using machine learning, so training machines to understand what sort of thing is this. Is this a spiral galaxy? Is it a, an elliptical galaxy? What is it? So we've been working with uh, Caroline Cox, who's a, a lecturer in the law department, who's very concerned about illegal ivory trade on eBay. 
It's been illegal on eBay since 2009 to trade in ivory, but that doesn't stop people. They just don't say it's ivory. They say this is you know, exotic bone or something like that. So you could try to catch people with those, those particular keywords, or you could just take the images that they're putting on eBay and you can try to train a machine to say, that's not bone, that's ivory. That's not plastic, that's ivory. And so we've now trained a machine on many, many examples of ivory so that anywhere where it shows a yellow dot, it thinks that that pixel is ivory. So it's taking that image and it thinks that all of this is not ivory. White just means it's background. And yellow means, I think this is ivory. And so we're, we're now working with Caroline and um, the, the Met and others to use these sort of techniques to catch people <laughs> who are trading in ivory. But the last thing I want to tell you about is this exciting new type of innovation that we're engaged in to do with space. And to introduce this, I want to show you this plot that you may not, not have seen before. This is the regional distribution of the UK space industry. So this is where there are space organisations in the UK. Isn't it interesting? It's completely dominated by the South and Southeast. And this is where the employment is in the space industry. There's lots in Scotland, but then also a dominant region in the Southeast. And this got us thinking that we really ought to be engaging more with all of these space industry businesses um, to, to have a sort of academic partner with them. So we've been doing all sorts of things about this. We've started to think about how we are going to make our own Portsmouth satellites. Um, but we're starting with something smaller, which is these, they're, they're literally the size of a Coke can. Um, and you can drop them from drones. You fill them with many different sensors and you can learn about, for instance, the atmosphere. You could learn about microplastics in the atmosphere. You could learn about temperature and pressure carbon monoxide, whatever you want, um, but this is not for orbit, but it teaches our students how to make a little satellite. And these are two of the undergraduates who worked with us this summer to make one of these things. What they're actually holding is a parachute, and they're about to throw it off that ledge, <laughs> to, you know, taking their, their life in their hands and hoping that uh, their work for several months is not going to crash but instead be caught by the parachute. And it worked very, very well. This is now the first stage in our programme. But now we're engaged with the UK Space Agency to actually have satellites which are going to go into orbit and beyond. So I'm working with Cambridge and Rutherford Appleton Labs to get this thing up and running in the next few years called CosmoCube. This is um, small satellite, probably about that, that size, uh, which will orbit the moon. And every time it goes the far side of the moon, it's in an incredibly quiet situation for radio. All of the radio that goes on on Earth, it's shielded from on the far side of the moon. Also, if the sun is the other side of the moon, then it's shielded from all the radio from the sun as well. And that means that it can see so beautifully the radio waves faintly glowing the other side of the universe. So this will actually be able to see radio waves from before stars even started to shine. 
A similar thing that I'm involved with is with the jet propulsion labs in the United States, where there's a feasibility study that we're doing at the moment for this thing called the Lunar Crater Radio Telescope. Again, you put it on the far side of the moon. This is a crater, but can you see the sort of gold-looking dish at the bottom of the crater? That, again, we'll be able to see with pristine precision the radio waves from the beginning of the universe's history. So, it turns out that this is really going to be important in the South. So over the last six months, um, we've set up this thing called Space South Central, which is a cluster of organisations, um, including the University of Portsmouth. We will have the Centre for Space Missions. If, if you like, we want to be the architects for these different projects. And we're collaborating with University of Surrey and the Surrey Space Centre, and they will be the construction experts for these projects. But then um, we link with this thing called the South Central Space Enterprise Network that links with many, many of these different industries across the South. And this is already, although it's only existed for six months, it's already the largest cluster of space academics and industrial partners in the UK. It's, it's suddenly got bigger than all of the other ones uh, that have gone on for quite a long time. What we want to happen in Portsmouth, and we've been having meetings about it this week, is something called the Concurrent Design Facility. It's based on something that we've seen in Jet Propulsion Labs, which is they have a room which they fill with experts, and all the NASA missions at some stage have gone through that room. It takes people's back-of-the-envelope silly ideas, uncosted, no idea how to do it, but quite a smart, silly idea. And that room takes that idea, matures it, works out, okay, it would have to be this sort of satellite, it would be, have to be this sort of level of mission, it will cost about this, and no, you cannot do dolphin psychology from space, go back to the drawing board. So that's the sort of idea. That doesn't exist in the UK, and we think that's a niche that we're going to fill. So we've been talking to the UK Space Agency about it. These are our uh, academic partners across the world, from Portsmouth. So we're saying that we can combine the reach of the university, plus all of the industry that's going on in the, the South, to, to make a, a world-class design facility. So the idea is that in Portsmouth, there'd be this intense design activity on these early phases of missions. So this is where you get concept design, technology development, and then we pass it on to the Surrey Space Centre for this uh, part of the, the missions, which is actually creating the satellite, and then the missions would actually take place, and this is where you have operation of the mission. So we're interested in this side of things in Portsmouth taking the missions from basic concept to preliminary design. And uh, we're planning to start this in January with our first examples of, of missions coming through. So something that was announced today, with this I'll finish, is the Portsmouth Research Institute for Space Missions. So this is now live and being publicised across the university. Um, first message about it went to all staff 
today, so it's now public. And the idea is that as well as the Dennis Sharma building, which is uh, near the um, registry office, if you've ever been there in Portsmouth, that there would be another building, possibly next door to it, which would be the centre for space missions, combining all the things I've just talked about, being a centre for Space South Central, this cluster, being the place where we will do these back-of-the-envelope calculations all the way through to realistic missions. Um, so it's an exciting time, and this is about to kick off. The university is putting a lot of um, support behind it, and the UK Space Agency are very, very keen on it as well. So that's what I wanted to say today. Um, I've talked about the discoveries that are happening in the universe, and um, it's great to be on the South Coast where a lot of these things are really happening. Um, we are trying to be useful. It's not the fundamental reason we do it, but we think that there's all sorts of things in which we can give back to society, including health and the environment. And now we are moving towards being a major player in the UK space sector. Thank you very much. So how do we make a 3D map? You're right, the way that we would do it on, in the room is to have two eyes or two cameras. But no matter how far away you put the cameras on Earth, it's still not yeah, sensitive enough. So we use a different technique, which is something that people have discovered is that the further away things are, the faster they're moving. So this is to do with the expansion of the universe. And if things are moving, away from you, they get redder. This is similar to what happens with an ambulance, right? So, so you know the situation where an ambulance is coming towards you and it's like, Nina, 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 as it goes past you. And that's because when it was coming towards you, the wavelengths were compressed, and when it's moving away from you, the wavelengths are stretched. So it's the same with light. If it's moving away from you, it's redder. So we simply measure how red all of these objects are, and the redder they are, the further away they are. So that gives you your third dimension. The two dimensions are, of course, where it is on the sky, and then how red it is, telling you how far away it is. That's how you make the map. Yes, yeah. So uh, three of our members of staff are involved with James Webb. I haven't talked about that yet because the results aren't out yet. But um, Claudia Mauston is involved in the first big survey with the James Webb Space Telescope that's happening. Um, Orr Grauer um, is looking at how it tells us about the early behaviours of supernovae. And Becky Canning is very interested in how it tells us about big concentrations of galaxies. So this is all in play, but the results aren't out yet. But we're, we're, you know, we're thrilled.
Are you still looking for life on another planet? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you remember the radio telescope I told you about, the square kilometre array? <coughs> this is the first radio telescope where the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is one of the core projects. Up until now, it's kind of been an added, goofy extra for many scientists. This time, it's serious enough that it's one of the five or ten, I think it's probably more like ten, core projects. Um, and in particular, the, the thing that's new about the Square Kilometre Array is it's so sensitive, you don't have to rely on aliens trying to get our attention. Right. Up until now, we've just been looking out to say, is anybody actually sending us a beacon, a loud beacon? That was the only way we would see them. This time it won't be that way. I think we'll see nothing, but that's just my prejudice, right? But if there is something like the US Air Force on a planet in any, around any of the nearest thousand stars, they would be making enough noise as the US Air Force that would just snoop on them with this radio telescope. So they don't have to be talking to us at all. We'll just hear them if they're there. So that's why people are very excited about that. So, so far, no news. What you're hearing is quite old. That's right, exactly. Yeah, so it would be, from the nearest thousand stars, it would be tens of years old because of the light, the light travel time. We, can't, we won't, even with something as sensitive as the square kilometre of Earth, we won't be able to see much further than that. So we're still just looking in our neighbourhood. That's why I bet we won't see anything. Because my bet, it's only a bet, is that if there is life out there, it's fairly rare. So it'll be typically quite a long way away. So I bet we won't see it, but it's worth trying. Because we might be wrong. <laughs> might be everywhere. <laughs> I, I think you and then you, yeah. yeah. The square kilometre array, the animation you show, the little thing around, is there mm. a pattern there? Or are we expecting to sort of yeah. some sort of regular pattern? That's great, great. Yeah, so um, the, you, you get the, the question. If you look at where those dishes were, they didn't look like they were orderly. It looked like they were dotted around at random. They are very deliberately at random. Um, and the reason for that is the way that making images works with radio telescopes means that if you put them in a grid, your image would be very blocky and gritty. It's, it's to do with how you sample the radio waves. It would be terribly blocky as an image. There'd be ga gaps in the image and all sorts. So making them at random is a better way of sampling the radio waves and, and gets rid of that blockiness to the image. Just very deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about radio picking, looking for radio signals. I've heard of something called rapid radio bursts. Oh yeah, fast radio bursts, yeah. yeah. Um, can you explain those? Are huh. they similar to what you're looking for? So, I haven't talked about those, but yeah, so there is, uh, again, it's another thing that chirps. It, it, there's a particular signal that has different frequencies. But whereas I was talking about chirps in gravitational waves, or chirps from dolphins, this would be chirps in radio waves. Um, we don't yet really know what fast radio bursts are, but they seem to be from cosmological distances. They seem to be from other galaxies. And maybe they'll be able to be used as a probe of how fast the universe is expanding. 
at different distances away from us. It's not yet quite clear, but there is a hope. The Square Kilometre Array will certainly detect many of them, very many. Do we know how they're generated? I, I don't think so, no. There are some theories about them involving very exotic stars, um, but I don't think it's settled yet. So you're looking for patterns and all sorts of things mm. where actually there may be patterns or it might be random. Um, a pattern that's quite clear is the spiral, mm, mm. You know, which mathematically is what? 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, right, right. 13 is the pattern. Uh, that comes from nature, you know, from ammonites and from uh, sunflower seeds and so on. Are you also looking, or is anybody looking at the environment that you've got up there and what's actually happening in space? You see a spiral, obviously, and yet there are spirals in nature on, on the Earth, forming the same mathematical Yeah, um, so there are, there are these spiral galaxies, and they have got particular preferred patterns to them. As far as I remember, they're not the same spiral curves as we get in, say, snails and things like that. Um, but there are very good mathematical models for why they have the patterns that they do. Um, I don't think I can say much more than that about that. It's an interesting question about whether they fit with other spirals that we see. Sure. Well, I mean, it's just the notion that you've, you're looking at dolphins, you're looking at other mm -hmm. things. Um, Ammonites are really old, mm. ancient, and they form mm -hmm. this mathematical pattern. Mm. Uh, there may or may not be the patterns that you say in the universe that you look at, but certainly the spiral is one a definite pattern. Yeah, there. yeah. And they're found on Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a mathematical connection. Yeah, yeah. And it is very incredible how many mathematical patterns that we see in the universe and how they are related to patterns that we see on Earth. Particularly the... Well, you could ask me about them later. But, but the patterns of waves that we see in the universe is very interesting. And is com it's related to the patterns of uh, ripples that we see on Earth in very particular ways. I mean, you mentioned the Doppler effect. Right. And, and, and that's a specific pattern in sound, mm -hmm. waves as well. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the whole of the subject is based on this remarkable fact that we can apply mathematics, often very straightforward mathematics, to something as apparently grand and complicated as the universe. And that is a very remarkable thing about the subject. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm confused. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> that's a relief. However, we're not quite so confused anyway. Uh, we will invite you back again, um, but we'll leave it for just a little while, shall we, to make sure. So, but maybe when the James Webb mm. or other things come yeah. through, um, I'm sure that um, somebody here may know <laughs> uh, when is a good time as well. But David, thank you very much. It thank you very much. Thank you. So if you don't have any more questions, come and ask him. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes.